0: You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on Genesis called The Patriarchs. Would you turn me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21 as we continue looking at the Patriarchs. We're gonna read the first eight verses where it introduces to us the story of Isaac. So if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we read this together? It says, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time, or we might say at the exact moment, that God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son that Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him and commanded him and as God had commanded him, and Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast, you might say a celebration of joy and laughter. Let's start with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue our journey through the the histories of the foundations of our faith, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and understanding of what that life of faith looks like. Help us to garner from Abraham and Sarah's experience, Lord, things that will make a difference in our life, and encourage us to keep our eyes fixed on the prize of the high calling that is found in Christ Jesus. We ask you these blessings, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As you and I age, as we get older, our perspectives on life change. Now, to some of you who are older, as I am, that's obvious. To some of you who are younger, you can kind of get the idea theoretically You see, when we're young, we focus on what is ahead of us. Uh, The distant future is like 10 years away. You can't even imagine what differences will happen in your life in those 10 years. Young men and young women create bucket lists. They have things they want to experience, places they want to go and see, careers they want to build, mountains that they want to climb, both figuratively and sometimes literally. And this is why we consider youth to be glorious, not because it actually is glorious, but it's basically, it's all about the glories and the joys that they yearn to experience and expect to experience in life. But when you get older, you lose some of the wonderment of life. And those glories that you once saw don't seem so glorious. Instead instead of thinking about what's ahead, we give a lot of thought about what's behind us. I mean, we look back over our lives and we take stock of what we've accomplished and we wonder if we've done anything that is really notable. Or maybe another way of saying is, have I really done anything with my life that would have mattered or been unique? We use interesting words like legacy. You never hear young people talking about their legacy. <laughs> it's always older people, well, my legacy. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. You think some people have interesting legacies. I mean, they spent their whole lives collecting yo-yos, you know, and they have a, an incredible collection of yo-yos, but it's not the kind of legacy most of us think about. But on the positive side, when you get older, one of the things that gets clear for you is that you realize that relationships are more important than things. You you come to understand that relationships are things that are alive and things are not. There's no life in things. And they have no ability to really garner any kind of pleasure or fulfillment unless the things that you're looking at are attached to memorable moments, what, what Wordsworth referred to as spots in time that we go back and we draw joy from because they were momentous moments in our lives. But also as we Get older, we experience kind of a deepened sense of our own morality, or excuse me, mortality for obvious reasons. Uh, we realize that there's a temporariness to our journey. It's not that hard to envision the end of life. I mean, each funeral we attend, and as you get older, there are more and more that you're not going there because your mother took you, but because you were associated with those who have now gone for, home to the Lord. But it seems like each time we attend a funeral, we're edging ourselves closer to our own moment. We have this magnified realization that it's just a matter of time before the body in the casket or the ashes in the urn is going to be yours. And every time I do a funeral, and I find as the years are going, I'm doing more and more all the time, I do so many, sometimes I think I'm going to walk in and see myself in the casket, you know, it's like... Certain scriptures began to take on a a new forcefulness when James said, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Or when Peter writes, all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls. And so too we know do all of us. And I say this because I can only imagine what it must have been like for Abraham as he saw the years passing by And his divinely given promise of a legacy really seemed like not only was it not going to happen, but as time slipped away, so did the opportunity in his mind for God to fulfill that promise, that basically you start thinking, (laughs) well, time is, is running out. And when you have those emotions, you decide I either have to redefine my purpose in life or I have to double down on the one that I feel that God has given me. Well, unlike you and me, Abraham didn't know the end of the story. I mean, he didn't have a Bible. I don't know if you're aware of that. It hadn't been written yet. It'd be another 500 years before Moses would get around just writing the book of Genesis. He couldn't read ahead to see what was coming, and so he had to live it out. He had to live it minute by minute, and hour by hour, and day by day, year by year, sometimes even in this story, decade by decade. And I doubt that he understood that time is nothing more than a construct of God, something that God, in creating the material world, created time. In fact, he said he gave the sun and the moon just so that we could track time, because time exists where the sun or moon don't exist. It exists even where there's not gravity. Time is still a real factor and one of our favorite metrics for measuring things. But I doubt he understood that God has this capacity to either stretch or shrink time as suits his purpose and his will. And that's why we we discover that God is never early and he's never late, but he's always exactly on time because he can manipulate time for whatever purposes he wants. It's not like God suspends time, but God has the ability to reach into the material universe and cause it to go where he wants and to follow the path that he has for it. Which is a a very critically important thing to understand or maybe even more so just simply to believe because all of us will go through seasons in our life where we feel like there's not time enough that either things are not moving quickly enough or they're moving too quickly and we start pressing against those perceived barriers and boundaries and that's often where our biggest missteps take place. We intrude into what is the prerogative of God in an attempt to control our own destiny and destination. There's something else that happens to us as we get older. We tend to lose our sense of awe, our sense of wonderment, we stop being amazed by stuff. I remember one of my granddaughters asked me as I was getting ready to fly someplace around the world, and she says, well, Grandpa, are you excited to be going to wherever it was I would going? And I said, honey, uh, I have not been excited for these trips for about two decades. <laughs> you know, I-, I figured after I'd been to Russia about 100 times, by the 100th time, you know, y- you're not going to see anything you haven't seen more times than you want. And I said, realized that what happened was the first time I went, I couldn't believe that I would ever be in Russia, and I was in awe at, at Red Square and St. Petersburg and all these different things, the Kremlin and all that. I mean, I was just like a kid in a candy store having a, being a political science major in college. This was like, this was candy to me, man. I was just eating this up, Lenin's tomb, and I was so relieved to see that he was still there. And, <laughs> but now... First time I walked in the hermitage and I saw 26 Rembrandts that had been hidden since World War II. I wonder where they'd been. Anyway. And I'm standing there and they didn't even have barriers so I could get as close as I wanted. I could look at the brush strokes. And I'm sitting in this room surrounded with Rembrandts and there's nobody else in there. And I'm thinking to myself, I've died and gone to heaven. This is amazing. But I got over it. It's like getting over your favorite food or your favorite moment or favorite thing. There's there's things that that thrill you. And as you get older, it's just simply, I think, the exposure to so much that we begin to lose those things that inspire us and bring awe. The wonderment isn't there. So that when we were a kid and we'd see a plane fly over, we'd just go, wow. And now we don't even hear it because we're busy raking the lawn. Things change like that. We, in a sense, we begin to feel like we've seen it all, like we know how things work and we become realists. And in many ways, we can become cynical and even skeptical. I can imagine the initial thrill that Abraham experienced when God first first spoke to him 25 years before this moment. I think when God said to him, I will make you a great nation, how that must have been like you can't believe what God told me, this is incredible. But after 25 years and not seeing that happen, you gotta believe that the wonder began to fade. Some of the things that God promised had certainly come to pass. I mean, he was wealthy beyond his belief. He was more powerful and more respected than he had ever imagined or dreamed could be the case. But that which mattered the most to him, the thing that was the linchpin upon which all of the promises of God mattered and the meaning of his life hung still remained the one thing that was unfulfilled. And that's the nature about you know, gestation, about pregnancy, about having families, This the older you get, generally speaking, I would say nine times out of nine, you reach a certain point where it just ain't going to happen. You know, I look at my wife sometimes romantically and say, hey, honey, you want to have some more grandkids? <laughs> Let's call the kids up. Because <laughs> like, we know it's not going to happen within our context. That's just common sense think about Abraham. I mean, not only is she not getting younger, he's really, really old. Really old. And I think it's that moment where he, his faith began to enter a new season, I think. The wonder gave away to kind of a bewilderment. The belief became more like being baffled I mean, listen to the conversation that he had in chapter 15 when it says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus, which was one of his servants, probably his head steward, the guy in charge of all the details of his house. Basically saying, God, the thing I want the most, you, you haven't done. And yet God made it very clear to him that even though nothing had happened, nothing had changed either. And that's an important concept to, I think, we begin to get our minds around because even though we're wondering, God, why is nothing happening? God hasn't changed and nothing has changed in terms of what he plans or has promised to do that is The scripture says, my word will not return unto me void, but will accomplish all for which I have purposed it. And that's why God said to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. And if indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And here comes the critical moment. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, credited, and that the term that's used there means to impute it or to count it as if it was the same thing. That he was righteous in God's size, not because of anything he had done, but simply because when God said, I'm going to do it, he said, I choose to believe that you will keep your word and that you can accomplish what you planned. This becomes, as we would later find in New Testament terms, in Romans, Paul tells us, this is essentially the defining moment, a a moment God intentionally brought him to, and that's the hardest thing, I think, to grasp when we're going through difficult seasons, because God intentionally takes us into seasons where we are baffled, and we are overwhelmed, and we're discouraged. And we thank God, if you love me, you wouldn't make me go through this emotional difficulty and struggle and the seamless hopelessness of my cause. And God says, but you don't understand. It's at that moment when you'd make the decision that I'm going to believe you, which means essentially I'm gonna stay on this same path. I'm not going to turn to my own devices. I'm gonna stay in this path and I'm gonna to continue to follow you because I believe that you'll keep your promise. So that rather than surrendering to the obvious facts, he chooses instead to believe God. And Paul to the Romans writes, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. He goes on to say, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead and that Sarah's womb was also dead. And yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strong strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. I love the way Phillips, in his paraphrase, puts it. When hope was dead within him, he went on hoping. In other words, when he could find no reason to hope, he still hoped. Yet, as we will see, the internal battle of faith within didn't just simply go away. He believed God, but just like you and me, he had some bad days, Moments where wonderment wrestled with into wondering <laughs> and trusting became doubting and there's no more conflicted place to be emotionally than when you want to believe God and yet you're being overwhelmed by facts and factors that seem to deny everything that you believe God has told you. So when a decade had passed, I mean, give you kind of a sense of timing here. God says, I'm going to give you a son. It's going to be your son from your own body. Ten years later, nothing's happened. There's still no baby. And he's left with more questions and answers. Doubts began to enter in. And it was then that Sarah, like Eve, got an idea. And Abraham, like Adam, bit into the idea. Sarah said to him in chapter 16, she said, uh... "The Lord has kept me from having children go sleep with my maidservant. perhaps I can build a family through her." So Hagar, who was her slave, and this was kind of the custom of the time, that if he bore a child through the slave, then the child was same as his own son. The result was Ishmael, and the consequences still continue to be catastrophic. That the house of Ishmael to this very day has maintained an adversarial relationship, what the prophet called an ancient hostility towards the sons of Isaac, the sons of Abraham. Yet, like you and me, when we do things like this, we, Abraham didn't see the effects of that decision. Like you and me, he could see, he could only see what was directly in front of him at that very moment. So, when Ishmael was born, in Abraham's mind, The long wait is over. The problem is fixed. He has a son. He has an heir. Just like God when he said to him, from your own body will be your heir. But the problem was that Ishmael was not God's idea. It was Abraham's. Just in the same way that Jesus said to Nicodemus when he was pondering spiritual truths that Jesus was giving him, he said to him, flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. That Ishmael was not what came as a consequence of the Spirit of God doing something divine and miraculous, but instead it became something that you did. There was nothing of wonderment in the fact that you could go into a young woman and conceive a child with her. It would be wrong, I think, to say that Ishmael was a bad seed. I think rather we need to look more towards Abraham and understand, as Oswald Chambers put it so well. He said, the greatest enemy of the life of faith is not sin, but good choices which are not quite good enough. The good is always the enemy of the best. Outwardly, Ishmael seemed like a great idea, especially under the circumstances that that moment in time, we would say things like, well, it was a no-brainer, but it wasn't God's idea. And this becomes always the critical issue. What does God want? Over and over we have, in the Bible we have examples of people making decisions and not taking the time to step back and say, but what does God want? Is this what he wants? I know this makes, makes good sense to us and it seems logical and it seems like a no-brainer and we can't lose, but if it's not what God wants, it won't turn out the way we think it will. And you would think at that moment that Abraham would have been joyful when God comes to him and says, as for Sarah, I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. And you think he's saying, wow, this is incredible. God's going to let Sarah have a child. But instead we find Abraham isn't happy. It says his face fell down. In other words, he visibly became disturbed. And says he laughed, and the laughing there was kind of a, a mocking laugh. And he said to himself, Will a son be born of a man who is 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, Lord, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing, let Ishmael be the child of the blessing. Let him be the one that I'm looking for. Well, God is gracious and merciful. He says, I'll bless Ishmael, but the promise will not come through him. But I think it's important to understand that like Abraham, sometimes we settle for the good and rather asking God for the best. And we end up with something far less than what God really wants for us. See, Abraham, like you and me, wants to see the thing that he can see, and rather than to hope in the thing that he cannot see. He wanted to live by sight and not by faith. And if you tell me that's not you, you're lying. Because you do. But in that moment, he ended up behaving more like Esau, who was willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of, of lentils rather than being the man of God that he was. I'm not saying he wasn't a man of faith. He was, but like you and me, we have those fainting moments, I think was the way that one preacher put it. We have these fainting spells. Charles Spurgeon described it. We go through these spiritual sins. We just kind of have fainting spells. We just kind of give in to the pressures. We just say, I'm just tired of waiting. I'm tired of striving. I'm tired of just hanging in there. I'm tired of being faithful. It's kind of a a childishness, but nonetheless, it's that expression, I want what I want when I want it, and I want it right now. I want a wife. I want a husband. I want a career. I want a, you know, 3.2 kids. I don't, I I want all these things because I feel like I'm entitled to these things, God, and you're not giving them. Well, most of those things God hasn't promised to us, and to say that we're entitled is just our own fantasy, but Abraham was entitled in the sense that God had promised it to him, but God was not doing it the way Abraham wanted him to. Yet the plan of God, and this is kind of the encouraging part, is always unhindered. His will will be done with or without your cooperation. Now, I would encourage you to cooperate because it's so much easier. You know, you can, you can ride in the front seat with the air conditioning, or you can have him drag you by a chain behind the pickup for 10 miles of gravel road. It's your choice, whichever way. You're going to end up at the same spot. Cosmetically, the first one is a lot better. But God was going to do something that would restore Abraham's sense of wonder and awe. And I think that's the wonderful thing that you realize, that God wants us to always live and to never lose that sense of wonderment and awe. Now, as I said for myself, there's very little in this world that causes wonder and awe in my mind. But I never tire of that childlike wonder and awe when I see God do it yet again. To see God come through yet again. To see God work that miracle yet again. And so in chapter 17, verse 9, he said, Your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Now, I can't. I get Abraham. I, I see myself in him so much. It's like he's a little bit, he's really super incredulous, basically. 12 years after Ishmael's birth, 24 years after God has given him the promise in the first place, Sarah is 89, he is 90, and God tells him, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. We're told in chapter 18 that. Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him and Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed. She mockingly laughed as well to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then the Lord said to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at this appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son It's important to distinguish between Abraham's and Sarah's mocking laughter and the name that God said their son would be given, that of Isaac. Uh, they're closely rooted, the two words are very closely in their roots, but they are very different because whereas she laughed as if to mock or jest at the promises of God, and Abraham did as well, the word Isaac means he laughs. In its verb form, Isaac means to celebrate or to rejoice. In in short, God was saying to them, your chuckles of unbelief will be transformed into celebrations of faith. Or as the psalmist put it in Psalm 30, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The promise of God was that you're going to experience the sun and you're going to look at him and he's going to be a reference point for joy that he won't be the fulfillment or the lasting experience of joy, but he will be a referential point in your life. Sarah, who had endured years probably of being laughed at because it was considered to be the curse of God to be barren, now she could say, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will not laugh at me, they will laugh with me. No longer will I be a joke but I'll be an emblem of God's grace. I will never again mock the promises of God. It's as if she could anticipate the very words of the prophet Isaiah who said, sing, O barren woman, you who have never bore a child. Burst into song and shout for joy, for more are the children of the desolate woman than she who has a husband. There are two things I think that are important for us to take away from, uh, from this passage that we looked at. And the first one is simply this, that even though we struggle, and we all do, God remains eternally and forever committed to our success. Now I don't mean success in the terms of you'll be rich and famous and good looking. Most of us have struck out in the last one long before this and the other two you know, are, are drifting off into the horizon, and becoming less likely. But what I mean is that Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 13, he says, if we are faithless, in other words, literally, if we're we're unbelieving and doubting, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, God doesn't have faith in you. Sometimes people say, well, you know, the Lord believes in you. Really? No, the Lord knows you, and that's why he doesn't believe in you. (laughs) But he believes in himself. (laughs) And he feels that he puts his spirit in you. I love the way the Amplified put it. If we do not believe and are untrue to him, he remains true, faithful to his word and his righteous character, for he cannot deny himself. You see, God's promises endure unchanged, not because of us and often in spite of us, for God cannot be untrue either to himself nor can he be untrue to us. I love the way that Shakespeare eulogized love in his sonnet 116 where he said, "'Love is not love which alters "'when it finds alteration. "'It is an ever-fixed mark. "'Love's not time's fool. "'Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, "'but bears it out even to the edge of doom.'" Love bears it out even to the edge of doom. Time, he said, can't fool love. Ergo, what he is saying to us is that God can be trusted even when we can't. God can be trusted even when you and I can't. Most of us try to carry some pretty big bags. (laughs) We try to hoist some pretty heavy loads and we realize that We're trying to carry something that God didn't give us. In fact, my pastor used to always say that if you feel yourself overwhelmed and burdened down and depressed, discouraged, and heavy laden, he says it's because you're carrying something that God never gave you to carry. For he said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not that we don't carry large things and it's not that we aren't able to perform way beyond our capacity. In the spirit world, you're an ant. You're this little insect carrying this great big rock over your head or, you know, my pet dog taking it to me, you know, he's carrying it with all that, and you just go, wow, look at the massive strength of that animal, of that little tiny ant. And I think many times in spiritual things, we are able to carry things that other people look at us and say, how do you put up with that? How do you bear that? I'll never forget my mother asked me one time as we were going through a really difficult season, and she says, how do you... How do you deal with that? I mean, how do you bear up under that? And I remember it kind of caught me off guard because they thought, well I, I don't feel heavily burdened down. I mean, it's a terrible situation, but I know that God is the only one who can fix this, and I'm trusting that God's going to fix it, so I'm not trying to carry it. <laughs> I've cast my cares upon Him because He cares for me. Some people say, well, you're being irresponsible. you're not worrying enough. I remember we were first married, my wife said to me she was really worried about something. I said, why are you so worried? And she says, well, I kind of think that if I don't worry about it, if I worry about it, it won't happen. But if I don't worry about it, it will happen. I said, do you practice any other witchcraft? <laughs> it's funny how the way you're raised gets into your head, right? <laughs> you hear things coming out of your mouth. And when you look at them, go, wow, that's not Bible. But I think it's really important for us to understand that, that... God, my pastor, again, another way to put it, he says, you wouldn't worry about clinging so tightly to, to Christ if you realized how tight his grip is on you. That he's carrying me, I'm not carrying him. <laughs> I'm the passenger, whether in the front seat or on a chain behind the pickup. Either way, I'm still the passenger. God is going to accomplish. He promises in Philippians that he'll finish the work that he has begun in you, with or without you. Which to me, brings me great joy and deep peace. Because I realize God hasn't called me to make it happen. In, 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 a, in a figurative sense, I have produced a lot of Ishmaels in my life. A lot of great ideas, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do that, and we're gonna do this, and ministry's gonna go this way. And, and you know, sometimes they were even successful in a outward way, but at the end of it, I remember sitting back and saying, you know what God, When that was finished, it was dead. It had no life. It wasn't like the burning bush that should have been consumed and gone away. It just kept on burning. And when it keeps on burning, when all the combustibles should have been consumed, then you know it's God. I tell my staff sometimes, sometimes we just need to let go of some things just to see if they hit the ground. Because sometimes if God wants to sustain something up, he will stick a divine hand into that moment and he'll hold it up and you'll look at it and go, I don't know why that thing is still functioning. But it is. In fact, I, I, I sit back after 35 years pastoring this church, and I, I can't tell you how deeply I sense that to be a truth as I look around the room. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. I remember a guy coming from another city and kind of a church growthy kind of guy, and we're having lunch, and he asked me the question. He goes, so what's the secret of the success of your ministry? And then he said, "No, no, don't give me that's God. I, I get that, but what's the real reason?" And so I gave him the most profound answer I could come up with. I have no idea. I have no idea. He thought I was withholding important information from him. So I told him if he gave me a thousand dollars, I'd write the formula on my napkin. Well, not really, but. I wish I would thought of that at the moment, though. He probably would have paid it. Anyway. But the second thing I think is important for us to understand is that God's objective is that we have in our life a deep-rooted sense of joy. But the question we often don't ask and should ask is, what example is joy? What is joy? Does that mean that we walk around with a phony smile pasted in our face and going, I got the joy of the Lord, I got the joy of the Lord. You know, if you got great dental work, that's fine, but other than that, that joy isn't a smile all the time. It isn't always feeling up and happy and energetic and i got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart, down in my heart, I got the joy, 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 joy. Just wore me out. You see, some people say that joy is this objective point in time, this destination that you reach, that you come into this place of kind of a Christian bliss consciousness. You know, you enter into the rest of the Lord and you just have this peace now that just is all around you as if you have reached samsara in the Hindu concept. It's nirvana that you've arrived at and you don't realize that what those guys feel is not joy. It's it's more of a... um, basically a a sense of disconnecting themselves from all feelings. It's the Stoics' philosophy basically said, you learn how not to feel joy or pain, and so you feel nothing, and therefore, you're at peace because nothing touches you anymore. I don't think that's what God had in mind. Some people say, well, joy is just an emotion. It's a feeling that you have deep inside we kind of blend it together with the idea of those happy moments that we have in our life. And when Wordsworth said that joy is a spot in time, he was saying, I look back into my past, and I remember those special moments. And we've all had them. You've had those special moments where you said to yourself, I just wish I could keep this moment, and it would just be this way forever. In my mind, I go back to when I was a kid, and I'm at camp, and we're sitting around campfire, and we're all feeling this kind of Connectedness and this peacefulness and this oneness with nature and with one another. And I just thought, oh, if we could just keep this, and we never could. The fire went out, got cold, and we went to bed. Next morning, they were the same group of jerks in my cabin as was well there the day before. I was the only good one. In fact, I would say that joy is all of those things in a way, but it's more. It's, it is really the most desired thing in life. When you really get people to narrow down what it is that they want in life, it's they want a deep sense of joy. They may not know that word, but they want that experience where everything is perfect, that there's no pain. There's really kind of an amazing sense of pleasure and Relaxation. C.S. Lewis noted that there are two very important things about really having true joy in his book, Surprised by Joy. He said, first of all, that it is a feeling that points beyond itself, it desires for an object that our natural world cannot supply. Therefore, there are many counterfeits. You see, joy is more of a hope than it is an emotion. It has a destination, but that destination is ultimately in heaven, not here upon earth. I mean, you really see that when the writer of Hebrews says to us in Hebrews 12, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that he saw before him? Friends, it was you and me right now. It was you and me believing and trusting in him and imitating him in the same way that we say, my joy is fulfilled when I leave this world and I enter into the eternal presence. In this present time, I come to moments and experiences where that becomes more real and therefore my life becomes more joyful. But I know that I'm not going to find the ultimate fulfillment here. And it's that failure to make that distinction that really sabotages so many people's lives and leads them to often self-destructive and hurtful things. That there are people who think the fulfillment of some lust or the attainment of some kind of power to find some kind of wealth or praise or prominence. And we're told by a, a culture and a philosophy around us that if you get these things, then you'll have joy. And what happens? We come to those moments and we don't find joy in them. And we have so many examples of people who reach the pinnacle of whatever thing they're trying to achieve. And when they get there, they look around saying, This is it. This is it. You see, joy isn't found in getting what you want or getting it when you want it. It may make you happy for a moment, but then you'll be disappointed. I think about people who, (laughs) Yeats, the poet, spent his whole life going from one relationship after another because he was looking for the perfect platonic relationship. And he found after about two years of living with some woman, the joy was gone. Him and B.B. King had sang together, the joy is gone. And he'd leave her and move on to the next one. And same with Picasso, even Hitler was like that. And always looking and hoping that somehow, someday, someway, I'm going to come to this moment where it just becomes perfect, but it never does. Joy is more of an anticipation of a consummate delight that we will know one day, even though at various moments it seems like we'll never possibly ever get there. It's what Paul was talking about when he said in Philippians 3 that I press on to the prize of the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. Not as though I've attained, but I still reach out for it because I know it's there. So that when he is waiting in in the Palatine prison, waiting for his decapitation, he writes to Timothy and said, I'm ready to go. Because I know what I've committed to him he will keep until that day. it's a kind of strange I mean don 't mean to be too mystical to you, but after my parents passed away, one before the other, obviously, but I remember I, I was just praying one day, especially after my father passed away because he gave his life to the Lord, but you know. He had a lot of history, and I, I just thought, God, <laughs> I hope he's really saved. I hope he really got to heaven. And I said, Lord, would you just show me somehow that he's, he's with you? And this is my personal experience. I don't want you I'm not going to write a book on it or claim it as a divine revelation. I had a dream that night. I don't dream often, and I don't remember the dreams that I have. But this one was so clear where I saw my dad in heaven, and the only word that came to my mind was, he was fixed. <laughs> Everything that was wrong with him was gone. He was not old, he was not young, he was fixed. And he wasn't laughing or smiling, he just had this look on his face of total joy. <laughs> and I remember I woke up the next morning saying, thank you Jesus. Same thing happened with my mom when she left. And that's why I just really look at it and say, you know, where is that ultimate moment of fulfillment found? Well, we're trying to find it in this room. We're, we're looking under the tables. You know, if you're single, you're looking around at the merchandise. You know, you just... <sighs> You can find a lot of great relationships and great life experiences and wonderful things that in many ways are just simply postmarks on the way to where you're going. But the joy that we want is something that has been set in heaven before us. And our pleasure in this life, more than anything else, comes in knowing that today we're one day closer to that than we were yesterday. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah said. And he said it to a people who are in the middle of a city that lay in rubbles. They're surrounded by people who want to hurt them very badly, threatening to destroy them. And he looks at him and says, you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's believing that God is going to fulfill his promises. That's where your strength comes from. That's what lifts up your soul. Joy is an internal sense of strength and confidence and power because you trust that God can do it. God, I don't know how you can change me. Well, he just says, I will. God, I don't know how you're going to fix me. He will. God, I don't know how you can meet this need. He will. He doesn't require you to know anything beyond saying, you know, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And he hears that promise for 25 years before it finally comes to pass. But it happened. It happened. Father, I pray that you would help us to rest confidently in the promise that it will happen. What is our life but a vapor that appears for a moment and then passes away? I used to read that and I believed it was true, but It wasn't until I got to this point in my life that I began to know it from experience. As we were looking at pictures that were taken of a group of us, (laughs) Sandy and Linda and my wife and I, and some other folks 25, 30 years ago, dang, we were good looking. What happened? Time passes, Lord, and it passes so quickly. But help us to remember, Lord, that we are only passengers riding through this world with you. That you're going to deliver us first class when the day has come. And then from that moment on, we will know joy, unspeakable joy, everlasting joy in your presence. We thank you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.